0: Good morning, how is everybody? I, I, raise your hand if you're warm enough this morning. We don't want anybody getting cold here in this, uh, it, yeah, it may before the time is up. I'm, I'm really glad to be back. Uh, those of you who don't know, I've, I was in Brazil until Tuesday night, uh, this past Tuesday night I got home and uh, was speaking at a conference, uh, actually speaking and interacting at a conference of, of young people and young professionals there in Brazil who are all tribal <laughs> and uh, are all filled with a passion to make sure that the uh, the good news gets around to the other tribal groups there in in Brazil. There are some 240 or so unreached tribal groups still left in South America. About half of those are in Brazil. There were people there from... Uh, from Bolivia. They were people from Colombia. there were people from Brazil. The folks from Paraguay that couldn't, they came up couldn't get in. They, they got stopped at the border and uh, were turned back there at the border so they weren't able to attend. But God gave us an excellent conference, uh, just the same, and it was wonderful to watch these young tribal people interacting with one another and so filled with passion about the job that God has given them to do and and looking for ways to make all of that happen. Uh, I love that song that we just sang. Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, where the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, um, and it's time to sing your song again. And the passion that we should all have to be able to say along with that song, may I still be singing your song when evening comes, at the end of the day, after it all, after everything that you asked me to face, may I still be singing your song. There's a song that's been resonating in my heart since, uh, well, we go back to 1981. It has to do with a group of tribal people in the Philippines called the Bukalod And, and at the end of June, I told you the story about how the good news came to the, the headhunters among the Bukalod. They, And I was trying to illustrate for you uh, what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Let me just read it to you. Peter says to us, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the passion of his heart. His heart resonates with that very song his unwillingness that any should perish, his insistence on being patient with us as he waits for us to do the job that he's left here for us to do, that he's left us here to do. And, uh, and, and, and being in Brazil was a, a tremendous opportunity for me and a, a privilege to see that, but, but really that song in my heart, that song that, that I trust will never end in my heart, uh, began back in 1981, and actually before that I... I've always had a passion for unreached tribal groups and I, I, I try to trace exactly where that came from. It started as a very small seed when I was just seven years old and, and grew from that into something that really has overwhelmed my heart in terms of uh, not just their need out there but the joy that comes when we hear that another group has been reached, another group has heard the old, old story. The as if you recall, if you were here a few weeks back, were the, the lowest of the low among humanity, at least back in the in the old days. Their culture required them to ambush and, and murder and take the heads of their victims. The Philippine government thought that they should be destroyed and, and, and launched an effort to do that, were prepared to do that, until a, a missionary, uh, a head of a mission organization went and sat with the president and said, please, can you... Just give us an opportunity to send some missionaries up there. You'll see, when these people hear the story of Jesus, they'll change. Their lives will be completely transformed. The Philippine government was dubious, but gave that permission. And, and the Philippine government thought that they should be destroyed But Christ. But Jesus reached into that dark pit of humanity and saved the Bukalot because he was not willing that any should perish and that's when life began to change for the bukolo they had been headhunters and all of the passion that's required to be that all of the courage that it takes uh, that didn't go away immediately and certainly when the headhunting started to go away the courage and the passion didn't go away i remember uh, after faith and i had moved in there and began working with them i was i learned the language and had already begun teaching the elders i was itinerating around a little bit from village to village spent more than 20 hours a week on the trail, and then two hours, two or three hours teaching, and then I'd hike back with the, you know, with that in hand, and just kind of collapse on the floor and let the kids crawl all over me when, when I got home. We got a radio message one day from the pilot out in Aritao, and he said, uh, he said, "There's somebody here, who, uh, who'd like to come in and visit." He's, uh, he's read the March uh, 1977 issue of National Geographic. The Bukalot were featured in there uh, in one of the stories, and, and uh, there's pictures of friends of ours, you know, in there. And, and uh, he's read that, and he, just, he wants to go up, and he, he says he wants to visit Jinjin, which was, a, uh, you know, was kind of a twisting of the word G-I-N-G-I-N, which they call Gingin, but uh, he wanted to visit Jinjin, Jin and, and there wasn't there weren't any missionaries in Jinjin. Jin, but we were about six hours walk away from Jinjin, Jin. and so I said, "Well, you know, who is this guy? Do you know anything about him?" He said, "No." He said he's got an Irish accent. He says he's from Northern Ireland, and he'd just like to come in. And you know, I uh, whispered to myself, "I hope he doesn't have a bomb in his bag." You know, because back then there was just terrorist activity all the time in Northern Ireland. It was an extremely dangerous place to be, and so I. Wasn't sure why he wanted to come and visit, but, uh, but I said over the radio, sure, bring him on in, you know. And, and the pilot flew him in, they landed on the airstrip, got the plane turned around and, and uh, shut the engine down, and, and I went over and opened the door of the plane, and this guy was sitting in there, big smile on his face. Kind of a rough-looking fella, about my age at the time, maybe a little older than I was, and... I introduced myself and he introduced himself with his Irish accent and uh, he got out of the plane and, and now we're standing face to face and I, I said, so, uh, you know, what brings you here? And he said, oh, I'm just fascinated with these, these people and that story that I read and, and uh, I said, well, what would you like to see? And he said, well, I'd, I don't know, i just like to meet some of the people and, you know, get to know what they do and what they're like and, and so I said, uh, okay, that, 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 we can do that. We can make that happen. We, uh, I said let's just go up into the village and and we'll look for somebody to talk with I, you know I don't know it's 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 harvest season, so I don't know if we'll run into anybody, but let's go up there just the same. Went to the first house at the top of the hill above the airstrip, and there's nobody there. And went to the next house, and, and, and I, you know, I was just drawing a blank, and so I wasn't sure that I could help him. I hated to disappoint him. And then we heard this really loud laughter. sounded like a group of men over in that house over there, and I said, I think I know where, where at least the men are. Let's, uh, let's just make our way over there. And uh, <laughs> he... Uh, he walked over there with me, and we got to the doorway of this little house, uh, but I looked in the doorway, and there were men sitting along the walls of the, these four walls of this house, and they filled every inch of wall except for the doorway, was so people could get in and out. And uh, and I, I said to them, you know, there's a visitor here, He's he's from... Northern Ireland. Of course, they had no idea what that was or where that was. But he's from Northern Ireland, and he'd just like to get to know some of you. Would that be okay? Or are you too busy? Oh no, no, Uncle, bring him in, bring him in. So I motioned to him to go up these, you know, these few steps, and and he sat there in the in the house, and 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 I went up after him and sat in the doorway with my back to the doorway, and and so there really was nowhere around the wall. So he just kind of sat in the middle, settled himself in. And uh, and now he's just looking at me. You know, we're kind of face to face, and I'm smiling. And and, and I he I, he said so. He said to me, so so what do these people do? I said, you mean you, you don't know? And he said, no. I said, well, they're headhunters. I've never seen a face change so quickly. There was just this big smile, and then suddenly there wasn't a smile anymore. And, and I noticed, he, I mean, he just kind of froze. He was pretending he didn't have a neck. I think that's what he was trying to do. And, and he started, instead of looking around, he had been looking around. You know, what are these people? He had been looking around, but now he's just doing this with his eyes, trying to catch sight of the people that he knows are behind him. And he said, uh, he said well, <clears throat> surely... Uh, None of none of these guys have, have ever taken a head, right? And so I switched to Bukalot, and I said, "He's asking if uh, if there's some people here who haven't taken a head." And there weren't any. It just so happened in that group there were no guys that hadn't taken a head. And so they and so I you know I translated back to him. I said, "No, not all of these guys have taken a head." And the beads of perspiration have started on his forehead. And his breathing is a little bit erratic. It's hard to pretend that you don't have a neck, you know, because that's where the breath goes. But, but he's just frozen, stock still. And, and he said, well, surely the, the, <clears throat> the police do something about that. I said, oh, man, I said, you know, we've lived here for three or four years now. We've never seen any police up here. You're three days' walk from the nearest police station, in fact. So, yeah, you couldn't count on the police for any of that and and it's clear at this point that he's in full panic mode and I know I know it wasn't nice but, but it was fun it was it was it was truly truly fun and uh, and you know now he's sitting there and he stopped talking i'm not sure he's actually breathing anymore you can't see his chest because i don't know maybe he's pretending to already be dead and so one of the men asked me uncle what what's going on? He looks really terrified. And I said, he is really terrified. Well, what's he terrified of? I said, and I said, well, he asked what you do, so I told him that you're headhunters. And they all said, oh, uncle, um, did you tell him that we don't do that anymore? (laughs) And I said, no, I haven't gotten to that part yet. Well, uncle, you should probably tell him that we don't do that anymore. And I paused for a moment and I thought to myself, you know what, you guys, you guys ought to be the ones to tell him that you don't do this anymore. And as they began to explain to him what had happened, I I don't, I don't believe that anybody anywhere has ever received a more powerful gospel message than that man had that day. Surrounded by men who at one time in their life would have killed him without thinking twice about it. And now they're sitting there saying that Jesus has died for us. We've been redeemed from our sin. We've been forgiven. And we want you to trust him as well. It was a powerful message as I sat there and translated for him. I'd like to be able to say that, you know, he walked the aisle and raised his hands and did a holy dance. He he really didn't. He's, You know, he was very... He was very Irish and, and very northern Irish. I'm <sighs> not sure that it actually transformed him the way we would have liked, but we don't know. We don't know what happened at 3 o'clock the next morning when he was wakened up by the fear that he felt and the peace that came with the gospel. But that was the day that I understood how truly powerful the Bucalot story is and how powerful the story of any tribal group is because every reached tribal group has stepped out of the darkness of animism into the glorious light of the gospel. And that's when I began to understand that that tribals should be sharing the gospel. Tribals should reach tribals, in fact, because men and women who have grown up in a tribal group have a power that I do not have when it comes to sharing the gospel. I grew up in a Christian home, and I don't regret that for a moment. I was uh, was taught that heritage from the time I was very, very young. But these people lived in darkness until somebody came from outside with the good news and shared that good news with them and gave them the opportunity to believe in Jesus and to see their lives completely transformed. And that takes me back then to when the gospel first made its way up to Buccalo, before we even arrived there. Uh, there were many who had heard the good news, but back then, the only, the, the, that only happened. People only heard the good news in villages where the missionaries were working because the missionaries came from outside with the gospel. That's what happens in every culture. It happened in our culture hundreds of years ago when missionaries came from the outside and shared the good news about Jesus, and, and uh, still the gospel continued to spread and and more and more villages were hearing the good news. And, and I, remember, I remember hearing about Long Long, a good friend of mine. We were sitting down talking together one time and he said, Jay, you know, I, I clearly, DJ," he called me. Um, I, I clearly remember uh, when I was just a young man, after I had, had trusted Christ as my savior uh, I remember going to a prayer meeting and sliding into the prayer meeting and sitting there on the floor in, a, in an absolute huff and out of breath. And I said, I said to everybody sitting there, please pray for me because the guys are going on a headhunt and I really want to go. And I told you last time that we were together that that may seem really strange to you, but headhunting was the most noble thing a man could do. That was, as, that was as good as it got. And I know it might sound strange, but... Uh, because headhunting at that time was still the most noble thing in their culture, uh, they now knew that God didn't want them to kill, but that was not an easy change to make. And if I'd, like you, I'd like to suggest, if you're having trouble understanding that, think about how you would feel if I were to come to you with a message from God that he no longer wants you to play or watch football, that he no longer wants you to get together for tea, That he know if I could, if I had a message and some think of something you really like to do, and I come to you with a message from God's word and prove to you from God's word that God no longer wants you to do that thing. If the Spirit of God was at work then and it was actually the truth from God's word, you might believe it. But I can imagine those of you who love football saying, going to, you know, your friends and saying, please pray for me because my friends are starting a football game and I really want to play. Or a bunch of my buddies are getting together to watch the Super Bowl and I just, I want to go. I don't care about the game. I just love the food. I don't know why you go to Super Bowl parties. But you can imagine making a transition that large. Something that you've always loved, something that was always noble, now suddenly is no longer noble. It's sinful. It's something that God wants you to put away. So the headhunting didn't go away immediately. And uh, there, would be, there were believers in, in, in many of the villages, and, and they would continue to go out hunting for animals, for food. There were deer and wild pig and, and other things up there that were more delicious than you can imagine. And, and uh, they would go out on hunting parties. And, and every now and again, uh, the, the unbelievers who were, who were all still hunting heads, they, the believers would put together a hunting party to, cat, to get an animal for, for supper, and the, the unbelievers would run into them out on the trail. They're on a head hunt. The believers are just out looking for food. And, and, and you, you remember from the story that I told, that's supposed to end with people dead. That's just the way that's supposed to be. But, uh, but late at night, you hear stories told around the fire of, of believers, men who showed remarkable courage, who would find themselves in that situation face-to-face, With a group of people from that village over there where the gospel has never been, face to face with those people there, and they would take their weapons off and untie their their bolo and set them down by their sides. They would kneel down there along the trail. They'd put their hands behind their back and they'd stick out their necks and they would say, We're followers of Jesus now. We will not kill. And the sweet, amazing part of God's grace in the midst of all that is not one single believer lost their life when they took that step. Not one. I can... Uh, I wish I had a picture. I, I do have a picture of him. He's an old man now, but back in those days, he wasn't an old man. I mean, they're, they're short people, but they're tough. You know, they're just as tough as they can be. Uh, his name is Thubde, and he truly is a dear, dear man. But I was sitting down with him by the fire in his house, and, and we were talking, and, and I, I said, the, they, I, can you t- explain to me what the difference is now? Uh, since before Jesus, the, word, the, the good news about Jesus came up here, and, and now that you've heard the good news about Jesus, and he smiled and he said, absolutely. He said, that, that's very easy for me to explain. He said, before I heard the good news, before the good news came up here, was carried up here by those missionaries, I was never afraid to kill but I was terrified to die. And once I'd heard the good news and believed it, I can tell you without any question that I'm no longer afraid to die, but I am afraid to kill. His life had been turned upside down. His heart had been turned upside down along with so many of the people that are there. They came, out of such a, they came out of something that you and I can't possibly understand because we don't share that background. And they came to a place where, well, in, in many ways they outshined me. I know that for sure in terms of their passion for the good news because it, well, it's just powerful as far as they're, was, they're concerned. I'd love you, for you to have been able to meet a man named Ngangan. He was born almost 100 years ago in the mountains up there in where the Bukalot lived, and, and he actually killed a man and took his head in order to marry Gonatan, his, his wife. Uh, and together they had seven sons and one daughter. His sons could tell you, uh, some of them have passed away now, but his sons could tell you that uh, they all remember the day when he came home with a, a body part, as I told you in that in that story, I won't go into that again. But they they clearly remember uh, their father handing them a bolo and and asking them to wrap their hand around it, and then he would wrap his hand around theirs and 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 teach them to to cut. They all share that as their testimony. But then one day, some missionaries, two single girls, here, my Lord, send my sister. Some missionaries, two single girls, came up into his village and. And um, they were going to live there, and, and, and they began to learn the language, and, and finally they got to the, to the place where they were able to talk about what they believed, what the word of God said. And they began to talk about how our sin has separated us from God. And, and Angon was so condemned and, and so convicted by what he heard that he decided that, excuse me, that he would get drunk every time the missionaries came to teach. That was, that was his plan. And uh, he actually did that. Every time he knew they were going to have another teaching session, he would get as drunk as he could be and sit there in his window. And he didn't care anymore what they said, you know. There was no conviction left anymore because, well, he was just in a different place emotionally. He was drunk the day the missionary told the village, all of the people there in the village, that God loves the people of the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die but have life that never ends. But the missionary didn't stop there. She very wisely went on to quote John 3, 17, which says that Jesus Christ did not come into this world to condemn the world. He came into this world so that the world through him might be saved. Engangan stopped drinking so he could listen. And not too long after that, he became a follower of Christ. A few years later, he became an elder and a pastor in his local church. His sons went on to become elders and pastors in, in other churches. He was one of the most remarkable men I have ever known. Whenever I was in Angan's village during those days and, or, and slept overnight there, I'd sleep at his house. He, he fairly insisted on it. It was one big room where everybody slept. We slept on this, uh, this split rattan floor and, you know, the walls were made of woven, bam- woven split bamboo and, and the, gr- the roof was all grass. It wasn't very big or very comfortable, but, but it was home. It was a good place to be. We would lay there on our, on our bed mats. He didn't have any mattresses, but we'd lay there on our bed mats on that floor and wrap on, in blankets, you know, against the cold and uh, it... it, uh, it you know, it, it never was as comfortable on that bed mat as it was on a nice mattress, but, but there were things that I knew were going to happen very shortly. And uh, it always happened. It never failed when you stayed over at his house. The The sun would begin to come up, and, and because the walls are made of split-woven bamboo, there's just these little holes you know, all over in them. And, and so you could see when the first light was coming up. You pick it up before the rooster picked it up. And whenever he saw that, He would would sit up on his bed mat. You could hear him rustling over there. And he'd wrap his blanket around him and he'd say, I mean, wake up. Everybody, everybody, wake up. And that's when he would begin to pronounce his daily blessings. He'd go from one to the other and talk about the day to come. He'd point to one and he'd say, you you two, you're going to be in the garden today and we know that the enemy is there uh, and and the enemy is going to talk to you to to try to get you to not work so hard and to do things that you shouldn't do so be on your guard while you're there and and you too you'll be you'll be working around the house here and, and 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 we know that we love our home but the enemy is here as well and he tries to get us to argue with one another so make sure that you take your stand and, and you too <laughs> You're going down to the city and we know the enemy is there. So who knows what he's going to confront you with while you're there. Remember God's word. Take your stand and and, and stand against the enemy. Every morning. And having said that, he'd come around to me eventually while I was sitting there. And he would say, and you, katan agi. He called me katan agi, old as me. I wasn't anywhere near as old as he was, but he gave me that honor. Katan agi, he'd say, Today, you're going to be teaching us God's Word. And the man, is going to try to confuse you. He's going to tell you lies. And, 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 and please, don't listen to him. Resist him so that you can speak the truth to us. And having gone from one heart to the next to the next, he would then say, let's pray. You wouldn't recognize Angan if you had met him. You wouldn't be able to believe that he had taken a head in order to be, in order to be married. His life had been radically transformed by the gospel. I can tell you today that it, it takes a great deal of passion to be a, a headhunter. There's no question about that. Passion and commitment. And Hangangon brought all of that passion into following Christ. This was just his daily habit. He was never different. <laughs> whenever you met him, whenever you talked about him, he, he, he seemed to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the kind of man that he was. And not too many months ago, Ngangan took that passion home and stepped into the presence of the one who had loved him and bought him from his sins with his own blood. I knew Ngangan well. I, as I mentioned, he called me Katanagi, old as me. And I, I had the privilege of discipling him and, and other church leaders there for nine years. And, and then in 1989, our work in there was done, and, and we moved out. At first, we stayed nearby in, in case they needed us. We stayed at the flight base, and, and uh, I was tempted often to just go running in there to fix something. But I knew that if I ran in there to fix something, that they would never have the opportunity to fix things and wouldn't learn to do that. And so i well, I called it benign neglect. I didn't know what else to call it. I just let them work things out on their own. In 2001, we returned to the States to take on some ministry initiatives here that well, continue to continue to this day to focus on the unreached tribal groups of the world. We have three children. Some of you know that, and that's important to know because this is where they come into the story of the Bukolo. All three of our children and their families work in Southeast Asia, as missionaries, and they're all involved either directly or indirectly with reaching unreached people groups. Our oldest daughter Jennifer, her husband Steve, and their three children are in the Philippines, and, and they're working with the Agta, a group that, that the group that's going out tonight is, is, gonna, is gonna meet. And, and back in 2010, there were 80,000 Agta in several different tribal groupings, 80,000 Agta who had never heard the good news in their heart language. Uh, they live uh, about uh, 20 hours by bus south of where the Bukalot live. And, and, and when Steve and Jen were finished learning Tagalog, uh, because Tagalog is a language that they could use with all 80,000, uh, even though they had no plans to preach the gospel in, in the heart languages because they just couldn't learn all of those heart languages. But when they were finished studying Tagalog, they decided to take a short break and visit the Bukalot. Now, Jennifer wanted Steve to see, uh, the last time they'd been up there was when they were just newly engaged, and and now they had three kids, and and she wanted to show her husband and her kids uh, the the place where she had grown up. The Bukalot were happy to see them. They, They call her Jennifer, but they can't say J, they can't say F, and they can't say R, so they called her Belle. They didn't know what else to call her. That was the nickname that she went by up there. Um, and they were glad that, that both Steve and Jen could speak Tagalog. And, and so they approached Steve and Jen, and they said, you know, you, uh, you speak Tagalog, so we want to invite you to come up here, and, and, and maybe you can help us. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that you could do. You could fit in right away. You could use Tagalog as the, as the language because we all speak it up here, and, you know, it'd just be great if we could just kind of get down and, and, and boogie together. And, and Steve looked around, and he said, you know, everywhere I look, I look up here, I, there are believers and there are churches and there are pastors and elders and but but where we're living down there among the Agta there's there's nothing there's none of this there's no churches there's no leaders there's no there's no believers and and after a short discussion between Steve and the Bukolod elders a decision was made that well maybe the best thing that we could do would be for us to come and help you that maybe that's the way we should do this Steve uh, made his way from from up in the tribe, up in the Sierra Madre, down to 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 his place where they were living south of Manila, and he had to pass through Manila on the way through, and called me on the phone. I'd been working in the Amazon for uh, five years at that point, and, and, and Steve said, Dad, I, you know, I don't know, what... what what do you think? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. But in May of 2010, we did a two-week-long consultation among the Bukalo, one upriver and one downriver. Uh, this group that's going is going to visit the upriver group there. Uh, we looked at their communities, we looked at their churches from every possible angle, and we found that, that somewhere around 65 to 70 percent of the Bukalo people claim to be followers of Christ. We found 20 strong churches in, in the 20 Bukalot villages of which we were aware at the time. There were multiple pastors in each church. And during that time, I had the privilege of meeting men who were discipled by men who were discipled by men whom I discipled way back in the 1980s. I, was, I heard my own heart over and over again. But despite all the strength that we found in their faith, they weren't sending out missionaries. It was also during that consultation that we realized that 96 of the Buc- 96% of the Buccalo people had no income. And therefore the churches had no money. So that means they could potentially send out missionaries, but they couldn't support them. They couldn't sustain them there on the field. So we took on two large projects there with them. One geared toward empowering the Buccalo to choose, train, and send out missionaries and another geared toward making it possible for the Buccalo to support the missionaries that they sent out. We decided to begin empowering them by holding a a seminar on the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts. And and, uh, as we went through Acts, we looked at those first 12 chapters and, and when we studied Acts, we did this same thing. Those first 12 chapters, it's every man for himself. You know, Peter... James, John, Philip, all of Stephen, they're all all out there and they're going to everybody anywhere at any time and and, and the Spirit of God is moving in individual hearts and and off they go. But in Acts chapter 13, something absolutely remarkable, absolutely historical happens because the Spirit of God doesn't speak to an individual there. He speaks to the church at Antioch. And he says to the church at Antioch, you separate out Paul and Barnabas and send them to do the work that I've chosen them to do. And now suddenly it's the church that's sending, not just people going. When we get to the end of that seminar, we sat with the, I remember to this day, standing in front of that group of men and saying, All right, this is the end of our story. That's all we're going to say about this. What does this make you want to do? Since the church at Antioch sent out missionaries, what does this make you want to do? And uh, the general consensus, it was wonderful to watch. We want to send out missionaries, Uncle. We just don't know how. Well, the seminar came to a close, and at the end of the seminar, I I saw Steve. I was standing on one side of the room of the the church, and and Steve was way over there with lots of people in between us. He was sitting down talking to one of the pastors, an elder named Emiliano, and there were tears in their eyes. And it's nothing unusual at all for there to be tears in Steve's eyes. He's got such a tender heart. But uh, Miliano was crying, and that had me wondering. So I, uh, I fought my way over there. I, you know, I, I tried, I ignored, I didn't. But by the time I got over there, the conversation was over. So I sat down next to Miliano, and there were still tears in his eyes. And he said to me, he leaned in, and he said, Uncle, I well remember when I was just a young man that you and Aunt Faith arrived here in our village. You had a two-year-old daughter, and a six-week-old baby boy. You had left your home and your family and your land and everything that you loved there to come to this strange place. You loved us, even though you had never met us, And, and you learned our language and our culture, and you taught us the truth. And now it occurs to me, Miliano said, that it's our turn. Very soon. Some of us will leave our homes and our families and our land to go to that strange place where they ought to live, to love them, to learn their language and culture and to teach the truth to them. And then he said this thing that has resonated in my heart ever since. It works so much better in his language. Those to whom others have gone must become the ones who go to others. So the stage was set. For them to send out missionaries, but as I've already pointed out, they had no money, and and uh, they 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 didn't want to be dependent on the churches in America long term. To be the ones that paid for this, because they knew that relationships come and go and fade, and if they began in a, a missions endeavor that was dependent on other churches, then well, they they just. They just didn't want to do that, and, and especially because, according to them, when we first, when we first asked them, they, they said, you know, Uncle, the, the day is going to come when we buccalode are going to stand before Jesus, and we'll stand there together before him. And, and we want to say thank you to him for what he did for us, for the buccalode. But then we want to be able to say, and, 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 and because we are so thankful, we also brought these other people groups with us to here to the throne. That was the passion of their hearts. They wanted to be able to say that. So we made a, a commitment to them that we, would, uh, that we would do everything that we could to help them with that. Um, I wish somebody could help me with this clock here. But, but um, it was during that time that Joseph and Len Tanchi became part of, of, uh, of, of Global Empowerment and, and began to work with us, became part of the team because we knew we, we, that we didn't have enough money to do what needed to be done, that the, there needed to be businesses started up there, and we settled on coffee, and coffee seemed like the, poss- the best possibility, and after several conversations, we, uh, we knew that it would take years to create a business large enough to send out missionaries, you know, profitable enough to send out missionaries and to, to raise the standard of living for the Bukalo people, and and, and so we weren't sure what to do, but I, I remember that night sitting down with Steve and, and I said to him, just think, uh, we've set three years as a target here. We believe that perhaps we can be profitable at the end of three years. <laughs> Little did we know, but uh, perhaps we can be profitable at the end of three years and just think in, in three years, the bookloader are going to have enough resources to be able to send out missionaries to the Agta. And, and Steve broke down again and he said, dad, that's great. But the octa don't have three years; they're dying now. They were going into a Christless eternity without ever hearing the good news. They're dying now. And so that's a. I got to make a long story short. It's not no longer possible to tell this whole story in just two sittings. But uh, but other people got involved and 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 began to invest in the in the Bukalo people themselves and. And now we're at a place where um, we were finally at a place where they were able to have a joint day of, of prayer and fasting. And, uh, and God had sent me to a, a good friend of mine. I, when Steve said, we, don't, we can't wait, we knew that we had to have a way to supplement. And so I, I went to my friend Alex Castillo, who used to be the CEO of Del Monte Corporation over there and uh, now has this consulting firm where he, he makes like $4,000 a day consulting with businesses, to you know, so that they can be more profitable. So I called him on the phone, and I said, Alex, I'm in a tough place right now. Um, I, I need your help, and I don't have $4,000, but I'll buy lunch for you. And he said, he said, okay. He said, let's do that. We sat down to lunch together, and I told him what was going on, the bucalot want to get to the place where they can send out missionaries, and, you know, i I'm just not sure where to go because right now we want to send the missionaries now and, and then let, you know, the, grow the business and then the business would be, and, and I, yeah, such a great idea it seemed to me. And Alex sat there and, and nodded his head the whole time. And, and, uh, and, and finally he, he reached into his pocket, he grabbed his cell phone, which I don't have with me right now, but um, he, gre- he grabbed his cell phone and he started to dial. And he said, I'm going to hand this phone to you when I'm finished dialing. And the, the, somebody on the other end is going to answer and it's going to be a man named Nonoy, He said, when no-noy answers, um, uh, you you tell him what you told me. And and then if he says to you, can you come to my house for breakfast, say yes. I don't care what you got going tomorrow. I don't care if you're flying home. Go to his house for breakfast. And he handed me the phone. Now the phone's ringing, and I've got it up to me. And, And a guy on the other end, a voice I'd never heard, says, Hello. And I said, this is not Alex. He said, well, this is Alex's phone. And I said, I know, I know. Alex is sitting right here. He handed me the phone, and I'm supposed to talk to you. He said, about what? I said, well, i I, you know, Alex and I have been talking, and I gave him the elevator conversation, you know, about what was going on, and, and the next thing he said was, can you come to my house for breakfast? And I said, yes, absolutely, and went to his house and sat down and told him the story, and and, and you know, showed him pictures. And and then finally he said, so what do you want from me? I said, I don't know. No, no, I I think that Alex thought that maybe you would want to be involved. You would want to help. He said, well, what are we talking about here? How much would it cost to get these missionaries down there? And we had already run the numbers, and we knew that we could get 17 missionaries down there and have houses built and, and everything and support them for a year for about $9,600. And I, he said, $9,600? And I said, yeah, really, that's... 9,000. He said, so 10,000 would cover it? And I said, well, yeah, I guess. You know, I'd have to get my calculator out, but I think, I think that would work. And uh, no, I wasn't a wise guy. Trust me on this one. And he did what they do in the movies, you know, bring my checkbook. And then this guy just kind of appeared out of the shadows back there. He wrote me a check for $10,000. And since that, he's helped again, and foundations have helped. Uh, A church in Birmingham has helped. And They've supported the missionaries as we grow the business that's going to make it possible for them to get the job done. And today, oh today we're, we're, we're building a, a, a whole campus where training the, a, a new training center, a new tribal Bible college is going to be. And, and I don't want to hurry to hurry through that. But uh, in closing, I just I just want to tell you the story of, of a man uh, that we met when we went to visit the Maniti. Uh, of all names, but the Maniti tribe. We were, uh, we were at his house and, and, and visiting, and the Bukalot missionaries, June June and Jenny T., some of you know June June and Jenny T., uh, and, and, a, and a, a single man named Sunday were, had learned the language and were uh, just about to finish their last language check, and they were going to move up and start telling the story of Jesus to, to the Maniti tribe. I was standing there with the guy the, with the chieftain, and he was sitting there, and his grandkids were kind of crawling on his on his legs, and and uh, I, I said to, uh, we just chatting back and forth, and finally June June, who was doing some translating and stuff between us, um, said, uh, switch to bukaloat, and he said, Uncle, you know it's time for us to leave, and so if there's anything you want to say to the chieftain, this would be the time, you know, wink wink. So I said, uh, yeah. I switched back to Tagalog, and, you know, he understood Tagalog, and I said, uh, I said, can I, can I say something? Oh, absolutely, he said. I said, I can, I can see that you're a, a father and a grandfather. I can see that you have deep responsibilities as the chieftain a, across here, and I can see that you're about my age. So would it be okay if I just gave you a challenge, if I gave you a word of encouragement? And he said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And, and I said, uh, I said, you know, very soon, Um, there's going to be some young missionaries that come up here and they're going to tell you a story unlike any story you have ever heard. It's the story of Jesus, and it goes all the way back to the beginning and and has all of God's plan, and and they're just going to lay it out in front of you one story after another after another until you fully understand what Jesus came here to do. And I said, "I, I would just please, please, if it were me, I would talk to my children, I would talk to my grandchildren, I would talk to everybody for whom I had responsibility, and I would make sure that they were there at every meeting. Every time the missionaries are here and telling this story, I would make sure that they were here. Can I ask you to do that? And I, I will never forget the answer. He, he looked me scra- straight in the eyes and he said, Look at us here. We are just here waiting for someone to come and tell us the truth about Jesus. I have asked God to etch that, that, those words on my mind, on my heart. I've asked him to never let me forget. We are just waiting here for someone to come and tell us the story about Jesus because it ties all the way back to where we started. He is waiting patiently for us because he is not willing that any should perish. COVID got in the way and we weren't able to send missionaries up during that lockdown and we're still looking for the opportunity to get back into that village to tell them the truth about Jesus so you can pray about that. I hope that we all have it in our hearts to do everything that we can. We have, uh, we have our, our all, all seven of you here. They... They don't, they, they don't even know themselves whether they're here or not. But if the seven people that are going on this trip could come up here right, right now. Please, right now. There you are. There you all are. They're going. Uh, we're leaving tonight uh, at around 1230, and we're headed for the airport. And I don't know how many of the elders are here right now, but could you join us up on the, on the stage as well? Yeah, come on up on the if you don't mind, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I knew you were there. Um, please be praying for these folks. We uh, we're going to visit the Bukalot, uh, the sending churches, and try to encourage them. We're going to go down then and 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 visit with uh, some of the, uh, the the villages. I don't know if we'll get into Maniti. I I do hope that we're able to to kind of restart that. Um, but we'll be we'll be traveling around and and visiting with uh, uh, there at the at the new campus and and uh, so much work has gone on there. We've been able to uh, this isn't the construction crew, but we we've, we've been able to uh, hire some uh, outside labor to come in and and work and and uh, that's stretched things a little bit. But but we know that God is still on the move there in that place and and that He has this uh, for us to do. So. Um, the reason that we're at the place where we are is because of your generosity, your kindness, your support, your standing behind us, and, and uh, we just want to recognize that now, and thank you for that. Brian is going to be the one to, to pray for the group that's going, but um, perhaps you could stand as we send these folks off. I'll, I'll actually be going with them. I'm talking like I'm not going to be anywhere around, but... I'm actually going to be going with them, and if, uh, if you could just join us in prayer.
1: Let's pray. Father God, it's such a privilege to be your children, and it's such a privilege to be a part of sharing the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, these folks here today that love you and are sacrificing of their own time and their own comfort to go and share that good news and go and encourage those that are sharing their good news as well among the Agta and the Maniti. Father, it's such a beautiful thing to see your spirit at work to see hearts open to the gospel to the truth of the good news Father we pray for this group today that you would keep them safe but also challenge them you would keep them on schedule but also interrupt them Lord we pray that your spirit would go before them And open the hearts and minds of those people that they're going to meet and encourage. And Lord, we pray that your will would be done most of all. Father, there's so many people groups that yet need to hear the gospel. It's such a privilege to be a small part of accomplishing that task here. Lord, we send them out with our blessing, with our encouragement. And, Lord, we commit to pray every day while they're gone that you would work through them in a mighty way. And like you always do, Lord, while you're working through them, you would also work in them and draw them closer to you and encourage them, give them wisdom. Father, we pray blessings on their families while they're away on their jobs while they're away. And Lord, we again, thank you for the privilege of being a part of sending the good news, sharing the good news, communicating the good news all around the world. Father, thank you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for being here this morning and sharing in this moment. We, uh... Uh, We'll be gone for two full weeks, so we won't be home uh, this next Sunday or the one after that, but on August 14th, three weeks from today, these folks will be sharing testimonies about what they experienced, what they saw, what they learned while they were there. Uh, It's always a highlight every year to have these young people, yes, you, Bill, to have these young people uh, share uh, what what they've experienced and and what God has, has taught them and what God used them to do. So uh, I hope you'll be back. Do pray uh, for them, for their health, for their safety, for their encouragement, and that God would use them in the way he's designed them to be used so that they can experience his goodness as they minister. We're headed out in that direction. We're going to be praying for one another, and we're gonna, you guys are going to keep the home fires burning while this group is gone. So thank you for that, and all I have left to say is ready. Go get him Potter's house.